Good. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, please uh, help me to speak faithfully and, and clearly as I ought. Uh, please help us all to be attentive to your word. Help us to, uh, to be able to concentrate. Uh, give us the humility we need to hear your word, to trust it, uh, to delight in it, uh, to live it out. For the glory of Christ we pray. Amen. Uh, I'm not really that much of a Star Wars fan. Uh, perhaps some of you are. Uh, but there's a quote in the, uh, the Clone Wars TV series uh, where Yoda... Uh, that great sort of font of wisdom, right? Yoda uh, says, compromise is a virtue to be cultivated, not a weakness to be despised. I'll give, you that, I'll give it to you again. Compromise is a, uh, is a virtue to be cultivated, not a weakness to be despised. And so I, I think that captures the, the dominant attitude in our culture. Compromise, compromise is a good thing, a, a virtuous thing. And there's some real truth in that, uh, but not always, right? But for example, uh, imagine if I was getting dressed and I asked Gabby whether I should wear my black or my brown shoes with my suit. And as we talked about it, it became clear uh, that uh, I wanted to wear my brown shoes, but Gabby wanted me to wear my black shoes. And so in the spirit of cultivating the great virtue of compromise, I went out the door with one black shoe and one brown shoe. Right? You, you get it, right? Like that, that's a beautiful compromise, but compromise does not always lead to the best outcomes. But it's not always a good thing. And that's because this whole idea of compromise actually refers to two quite different things. On the one hand, it can refer to two people who basically agree on the, the same basic principles. Right? They've just got to sort out some details. So, for example, another illustration, Gabby and I, uh, we're friends, and we agree that we want to watch a movie together. Uh, but, of course, often there's some compromise in deciding exactly which movie we want to see. Right? Uh, so that, that's good compromise. Uh, often, though, that's not what people in our culture mean uh, when they talk about compromise. Not in my experience, anyway. I think what they mean uh, is the need for one party uh, to kind of completely give up their principles to adopt their principles so, so we can all get along. Because as a Christian, I've got a whole lot of kind of fundamental principles that shape how I think about all sorts of things. Um, abortion, euthanasia, climate change, marriage, all sorts of things are affected by the fact that I'm a Christian. And typically when I'm talking to someone and they say, Aaron, why can't you just relax a bit? Why can't you just compromise? It's not like Gabby saying, will we watch this movie or that movie? It's like her saying, you know, I'm not even sure we're friends anymore. But it's a call for me to compromise the, the, the fundamental principles that hold together my whole worldview. And still, it's extremely tempting. Because who doesn't want to get along with others? Who wants to go against the tide? Who doesn't want to be accepted and liked and approved of? So surely a bit of compromise is okay, right? Maybe it's even virtuous. You, you could convince yourself of that, couldn't you? Oh, I tend to agree with uh, Chris Voss. He's an Australian business coach. Uh, language warning here. I'm not going to kind of say the exact words, but uh, he says, uh, I'm here to call BS on compromise. We don't compromise because it's right, 
We compromise, he says, because it's easy and safe and pain-free. He's talking in a business context, so a different context, but, but I think he's right. Usually uh, we don't compromise, particularly in that second sense of compromise, uh, because somehow it's right or virtuous. We compromise because it's easy. Because we want a life that, that's safer, that's pain-free, that has less rejection and discomfort in it. And that's the challenge for this church in Pergamum. They're being tempted to compromise beliefs that that really are fundamental to their their whole worldview as Christians. And it's all in the name of having a life that would be easier, that would be safer, that that would be pain-free. So so, so what do we know about this city, Pergamum? Well, in John's day, Pergamum was the capital of the whole province of Asia. Remember, that's not Asia as in slightly north of us. It's modern-day western Turkey. As the capital of Asia, Pergamum was a real centre of learning. It had a really big university. It had one of the very first teaching hospitals for all of those of you here who are health science people. This was a teaching hospital. It had one of the largest libraries of its day, right? over 200,000 books. A real centre of learning, Pergamum. Uh, It was also a spiritual centre. If you can imagine overshadowing the whole city right up on the hill, uh, what was called the Acropolis, uh, was the altar to the Greek god Zeus. Uh, There are other temples scattered throughout the city, one to uh, the Greek goddess Athena, uh, one to the Greek god Dionysius. Uh, There was also a temple uh, to this uh, Greek god Asclepius. He's the god of healing. And uh, worshippers of Asclepius, uh, oh sorry, uh, he was symbolised by a snake. Uh, those of you who are in the medical profession will know that the medical profession historically are uh, symbolised by a snake going around a, a rod. But that, that comes actually, I mean some people think it comes from Moses, but actually it comes from this guy. Asclepius, right? He was symbolised by a snake and worshippers of Asclepius would would flock to his temple, uh, they would lay on the floor and they'd let these non-poisonous snakes slither on them in the hope of being, uh, in the hope of being healed. But it was, it was very spiritual, right? I'm sure it was. Um, a bit weird, like wacky, right? Like snakes crawling all over you. But that, that was Pergamum. It was a spiritual centre. Uh, related to that uh, was the fact that it was a real centre of emperor worship, Right, so there were three temples in the city uh, dedicated to worshipping the, the Roman emperor as God. Uh, so that meant that at least once a year, Christians in Pergamon uh, were legally required to go to one of those temples uh, to offer a sacrifice to the emperor and to declare that Caesar was Lord. That, that was a legal requirement. And obviously a faithful Christian couldn't do that. Right? For them, the reality that Jesus was Lord was fundamental to their worldview as Christians. They couldn't compromise that. But you can imagine that under that kind of social and economic and legal pressure, it was very tempting. That's the city of Pergamum. In the outline there, you'll see, well, what about the characteristic of Christ? Uh, in the second half of verse 12, Tim's spoken about this in the kids' talk. Uh, these are the words of him, that's, that's Christ, who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Now you can imagine Christians, they, if they refused to go to the temple to declare that, that Caesar was Lord, uh, they were risking facing the sword of Rome. A, a great authority, great power, a terrifying sword. 
Uh, so here Christ reminds his people uh, that his, it's his authority, it's his sword, the sword of his judgment that they should really fear. That, that's, why, that, that's why he picks that image here. Oh, you might remember that back in chapter 1, verse 16, you can flick back if you've got a Bible, uh, but John saw this sharp, double-edged sword uh, coming out of Christ's mouth. It's the same later in, in this passage. So, so why, why his mouth? Because Christ is going to execute his judgment by speaking through words. Right? That's why we've got these letters in the Bible. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 4, uh, we read, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That's the context here. Christ is appearing as judge. But not primarily, not first and foremost as judge of the people of Pergamon, but as judge of his people, his, his church. Now we know it's not a judgment of punishment. Christ has already borne the judgment for all their sins on the cross. It's not a judgment of punishment. This is a judgment of purification. Through this time, Christ, through the power of his word, Christ is purifying his people. He's sifting them. He's refining them. He's uncovering those, laying bare those, to use the language of Hebrews 4, those who are truly his. That's what he's doing here. Uh, in verse 13, have a look at verse 13. Uh, we've got Christ's compliment to the church. This is what's going well. He says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, uh, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. But oh, I know where you live, Christ says. Uh, we, we tend to hear that in a threatening tone. I don't know where that came into pop culture. You know, I, I know where you live. Uh, but, uh, but actually, I, I think Christ is, is, is um, kind of complimenting the church here. It's a more sympathetic tone. He's saying, oh, I know it's really hard to live where you live. But because it's where Satan lives, he says. Where, where Satan has his throne. That's a bit odd, perhaps, like some of you not think about Satan that much. What does Christ mean by that? I don't think he's referring to any one thing in Pergamon. He could be. But I think he's referring to the combination of all those, those false gods and religions, all those things together, show that Satan is alive and active in Pergamon. See, on the surface, Pergamon is really a lot like Melbourne. Isn't it a pluralistic city with lots of different gods and religions and, and, and different forms of spirituality? Kind of no big deal. There's something wonderful. Like, But Christ sees something more sinister going on. He sees that uh, through this whole system of religion and politics that kind of emanates from Pergamum. Right? Remember, it's the capital of the province of Asia. So he sees that this whole system that emanates from Pergamum, uh, through that, Satan himself is trying to destroy God's people. 
Uh, not so much physically, of course, although there is antipas, but uh, really he's trying to lead God's people into gradual spiritual compromise. That's what he's doing. Uh, in C.S. Lewis's book uh, called The Screwtape Letters, uh, the, uh, the demon, Uncle Screwtape, uh, says to his nephew in training, uh, he says, just remember uh, that the safest road to hell uh, is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Uh, and this is touching, right? Your affectionate uncle, screw tape. That's what's going on here, right? Satan knows this. He knows that, that the safest way to destroy a particular Christian, to destroy a church in a city, in a, in a state, is to lead God's people down the slope of gradual spiritual compromise, little bit by little bit. And so Christ says to his church, well done. You're kind of right in Satan's firing line and you're remaining true to my name. Well done. The words remain true there. I actually have the sense of holding fast, grouping. Right here, in the face of immense pressure, these Christians are refusing to let go of Christ. They're holding fast to Christ. Some of you might have uh, I've shared this story before, but a couple of years ago I came across a story about a, a pilot named Henry Dempsey. Uh, Dempsey in 1987 was flying a 15-seat plane uh, from Lewiston in Maine to Boston. Uh, the plane was, was cruising about 1,200 metres uh, and they uh, heard a noise, an odd noise, at the back stairs. So uh, Dempsey handed controls over to his co-pilot so he could go back and investigate. Uh, when he got back to the back stairs, uh, they hit a, a bunch of turbulence. He tried to steady himself on the stairs. The door popped open and he was sucked out of the plane. Right, but kind of pretty scary. And of course, his co-pilot thinks uh, he's dead. Right, He's just trying to make an emergency landing as quickly as possible. Uh, but uh, little known to him, when Dempsey was sucked out of the plane, he managed to grab hold of a rail on the bottom of the stairs. And so Dempsey's hanging on for dear life. And, and his co-pilot, of course, is astonished when he lands the plane and discovers Dempsey still hanging on just 30 centimetres from the ground. Right, his hand's so tight around that rail uh, that each of his fingers have to be prized off kind of individually. Right? Dempsey understood that if he was going to survive, he had to hold fast to that rail. And here Christ is saying that's the kind of grip that these Christians have on him. They're holding fast to him. And that's the kind of grip we've got to have on Christ. Because just as there were powerful forces trying to pull Dempsey away to his death, so also there are powerful forces. You might not see them or be aware of them, uh, but they're trying to pull us away, you away, from Christ. And there's an important difference though, isn't there? For Dempsey, what was his most precious possession? Right, The thing that he would never let go of. It was his life. He was going to protect his life no matter what the cost. Not for Antipas. Not for this church in Pergamon, right? Their most precious possession was Christ. They would prefer to, to give up their life than to let go of Christ. That's an incredible compliment for this church, isn't it? Holding fast to Christ. Of course, most of us probably don't see Christ like that. 
if you're a Christian, like he's important, but not that important, perhaps. I think that's because we, we don't really understand what Christ has saved us from. But if we really believe that the Christ is like that rail for Henry Debsey, right? Christ is literally our only hope, not just from physical destruction, but eternal destruction. Right? If we if we really believe that, then we'd have absolutely no issue holding fast to Christ even to the point of death. Like many of our brothers and sisters around the world. Because knowing Christ would be our greatest treasure, our our most precious possession. We'd never let go of him. And for the most part, these Christians in Pergamum knew that. Not the easiest name to say, hey. But not all of them. Well, look at Christ's criticism of the church. It's in there in verses 14 and 15. He says, nevertheless, shifting gears... I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Right? So there, there are some in this church uh, who, rather than holding fast to Christ, uh, have started holding fast to the teaching of other people. Right, the teaching of Balaam, the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which uh, basically they're, they're lumped together. Right, so, so presumably what's happened here is that this church has allowed these false teachers to stay in their community uh, until at least some of them have embraced their teaching. Right, so so what, what's this teaching of Balaam? Uh, well, uh, if you've got the Bible, if you've got an actual Bible, uh, it takes us back to the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. If you're not sure where that is, uh, from the start of the Bible, you've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, and then Numbers. Right? If, you, if you want to look that up, I'll give you a second. Uh, a little bit of the backstory where we're going to uh, head towards Numbers uh, chapter 25. Uh, but the backstory here is that the, uh, the Moabite king Balak uh, was afraid that Israel might defeat his people when they entered the Promised Land. Uh, So what he did, he got together with the Midianites in Numbers chapter 22 and they hire the the false prophet Balaam uh, to curse Israel. Uh, But in Numbers chapter 24, Balaam tries to do that six times and he can't. right? Because what has God said about Israel? Way back in Genesis 12, he said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to the nations. So you can't kind of curse God's people. So Balaam tries to do that, but he can't do it. It's victory for Israel, seemingly. But then, in Numbers chapter 25, verse 1, we read this. While Israel was staying in Shittim, uh, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women, uh, who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. Israel starts to get way too comfortable with the Moabite gods. Uh, The men go along to their ceremonies, they have sex with the Moabite women, uh, they eat the sacrificial meal, they actually worship, they bow down and worship their idols. And perhaps they rationalise that that this little bit of compromise was no big deal. Why, they're they're going to a new place, got to get along with the people in the land, why not compromise a bit? Uh, But in verse 3, we read this, So Israel yoked themselves 
to the Baal of Peor, that's this idol, and the Lord's anger burned against them. That word yot has the sense of making an intimate attachment, kind of binding yourself to, to something. And that's important because throughout the Bible, the relationship between God and his people uh, is often described as a marriage. And what we see here in Numbers 25 and elsewhere is that like in most marriages, God is a jealous lover. God wants his people to be devoted to him, to be faithful to him. But Israel is repeatedly unfaithful. This is just one example. So the Lord is burning with this jealous anger, with the kind of anger that that a husband or wife experiences when they find out that that their partner's been cheating on them. Judgment is coming. So in the rest of number 25, as in Revelation 2, God's judgment comes first on his people. And it comes by the sword. So in verse 4, God says to Moses, take all the leaders of these people, kill them, and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to Israel's judges, each of you must put to death those of your people who have yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. That's, That's very confronting, right? Spiritual compromise, spiritual unfaithfulness is a very big deal, worthy of the sword of God's judgment. In Numbers 31, the Moabites and Midianites are also judged. Because they were the ones, uh, Moses says, who followed Balaam's teaching and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord. That's the point. Spiritual compromise is a massive deal. It leads to the sword of God's judgment. So in Revelation 2, if you come back there, it's no surprise that Christ has his sword. And we're in the context of spiritual compromise. Some in this church in Pergamum are holding to the teaching of Balaam. They're listening to these false teachers who, like Balaam, said, just relax, it's no big deal. Go along to the temples in the city, sleep with a prostitute, eat some food sacrificed to an idol. Just get along with people. Uh, Of course, we also live in a culture where there's lots of pressure to compromise. And not that most of us will go along to a temple or have sex with a prostitute or bow down to an actual idol. Maybe some of you do, but probably not many. Our idols are much more subtle, much more sophisticated, perhaps respectable. Uh, But spiritually, they're equally dangerous. For example, I think there's a whole lot of pressure in our culture uh, to have a successful career. Right? So many of us will do pretty much anything to be successful. Uh, we'll make a whole lot of sacrifices, uh, not so much of meat, uh, but of our time, our energy, our relationships. Maybe even some areas of our morality will suffer because we've yoked ourselves to this idol of the successful career. That's the, 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 the sun that our whole life orbits around. And if someone says to you, how does that affect you spiritually? You just get all defensive because the thing that you love is being threatened. You say, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. I've got it under control. I also think that parents feel pressure in our culture uh, to, to kind of keep up with other families in terms of what we provide for our kids. 
keep up with the Joneses, so to speak. I consider for a moment uh, how much money your family puts into supporting gospel ministry compared to the money you put into uh, getting your kids the, the absolute, absolutely best education. Well, what about time? How much time, perhaps, does your family put into reading the Bible or, or praying together or, or serving with one another uh, compared to running the kids around to sport or music or every other opportunity that our culture says they must have if you're going to love them? But I'm not saying there's something inherently wrong with sport or music or other things that might be on it. Nothing wrong with a good education. Uh, And maybe it's easy for me to say, but because my kids are both young. But sometimes I think we've kind of yoked ourselves to a, a bit of an unbiblical idea of what loving our kids must look like. Uh We've got some mission partners in our church, uh, Paul and, and Mel Jessup, uh, taking their kids to Japan. We'll hear more about them in a couple of weeks. We've got some other friends who've taken their four kids to our kind of remote wilderness, Niger. They're not getting the best education. They're missing out on all sorts of extracurricular opportunities. And sometimes I wonder whether they've got it more than us. Have we bought into particular idols? And you might say, Aaron, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. Just relax. It doesn't affect me. But maybe on these things or perhaps on other things that that Christ is convicting of you, he would say it is a big deal. It's a big deal because uh, it's a big deal to compromise your spiritual health because you've yoked yourself to the uh, the idols of our culture. And that leads to Christ's command in verse 16. He says, Repent, therefore, otherwise I'll soon come to you and I'll fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Uh, Them here is presumably the the false teachers and those who hold to their teaching. Uh, what, what, What does repentance look like? It looks like kicking the false teachers out of the church. That's how you know that they've repented. Uh, We know that's the case because Christ says, if you don't kick them out, I'll come and kick them out. I'll come and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Uh, It reminds me of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. In in verse 6, uh, Paul says, don't you know that a little bit of yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch. What does he mean by getting rid of the old yeast? Down in, in verse 12, Uh, He says, uh, uh, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Uh, But are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. That's what Christ is saying here, right? That this church in uh, Pergamum has been way too soft. They've got to use the sword of God's word to rightly judge these teachers. They've got to expel them from their church because they're being destructive. And Christ says if they don't do that, he will. So in verse 17, uh, we see Christ's commitment to this church. Whoever has ears, uh, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who's victorious, I'll give them some hidden manna. I'll also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it known only to the one who receives it. 
Rather, the victorious one is the one who, who really hears Christ's word by the power of his spirit. And in this case, you know they hear it. How? Because they don't hold fast to the teaching of Balaam or the Nicolaitans. They hold fast to Christ and, and his teaching. And if they do that, Christ says uh, he'll give them some hidden manna and a white stone. A bit random, perhaps, if you're not familiar with these images. Uh, You might remember that when God rescued Israel from Egypt, uh, he led them through the wilderness, uh, and he, he fed them in the wilderness with bread from heaven called manna. And when we get to the New Testament, uh, we see that the ultimate bread who kind of came down from heaven, the bread of life, is Christ. So the promise here is that if you hold fast to Christ, he will feed you and nourish you and sustain you through all the suffering, all of the wilderness of this world, uh, until you reach your home. That's the promise. He offers you hidden manna, sustenance, nourishment for your faith. Uh, but he also offers us a stone, and you're like, thank goodness, I've always wanted a white stone. As we like my daughter, like every time she goes out, she comes in with a leaf or a stone or some special piece of bark, or like a, a white stone, thank goodness. Uh, no, sorry, in this culture, what, what is, it's a symbol of something, right? In this culture, it's a symbol of three things. Uh, it was given to someone who was acquitted in court, right? it was a kind of a declaration of their innocence. Uh, It was given to an athlete who won a race, and it was given to guests when you were welcoming them to your house. Maybe you want to institute that when you have people over for dinner, a white stone, consider yourself welcomed. Uh, But uh, that's the picture here, right? If you hold fast to Christ, one day you'll be declared innocent, completely innocent. You'll be victorious. You'll be welcomed into his presence. So, So the big idea in this letter is that we want to live a life of no compromise, no spiritual compromise. Now the question is, uh, what's going to give us the capacity to do that? What's going to motivate us? Now, on one level, uh, it might motivate you uh, to live in real terror of this sword of God's judgment. Whether that, that has a certain motivational power, it, it might keep you going for a little while. I don't want to compromise because the, the sword of God's judgment is coming. Uh, but in the end, I think the most powerful motivator is not fear, but love. And how do we see uh, this ultimate display of love? It's in the fact that Christ was willing to be struck by that sword of God's judgment on the cross in our place. But you remember, uh, way back in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sinned. They were kicked out of the garden. And at the end of Genesis 3, in verse 24, uh, we read this. It says, After God drove them out, out, he placed on the east side of the garden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. What's that sword saying? It's saying that there's no way that any of us can have a relationship with God, can have eternal life, can, can re-enter God's presence uh, unless, some, unless someone bears the pain of that sword. Someone has to bear the pain of going under the sword of God's judgment. And the story of the Old Testament, and what went under the sword of God's judgment, it, it was animal sacrifices. They bore the pain of the sword. But in the New Testament, it's the Lamb of God. If you read Revelation chapter 5, the Lamb of God who's been slain for our sins. That's what happens at the cross. Christ is struck by the sword of God's judgment, bearing the judgment that we all deserve, that you deserve. And notice that there's not much compromise with that. The sword's flashing back and forth. It's either his life or your life. 
It's his death or your death. It's his will or his father's will. And so I hope you kind of get that Christ chose the path of no compromise for you. Uh, One of the books I read when I first became a Christian uh, was Keith Green's biography called No Compromise. I thought about it this week as I was looking at this. Uh, In one spot in that, he says this. uh, The cross of Roman times knew no compromise. It made no concessions. It won all its arguments by killing its opponent. It spared not Christ, but slew him. Like all the rest, with perfect knowledge... uh, uh, Slew him like the rest, rather. With perfect knowledge of that, Christ said, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross... And follow me. No compromise is what the whole gospel is about. In a day when believers seem to be trying to please uh, both the world and the Lord, which is impossible to do, when people are far more concerned about offending their friends than offending God. Uh, There's only one answer. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Your Lord Jesus Christ was uncompromising in his loving devotion to you. But he he did not choose the path that was easy or safe or pain-free. He denied himself, took up his cross and gave his life for you. And I think it's the the more you understand that, the more that truth uh, kind of trickles down into your heart. On our church camp, uh, Steve shared his testimony. He said uh, he's someone who's been moved, like I don't know what the exact measurements, but 30 centimetres or something like that, right? The knowledge that he knew to be true in his head had had gone down to his heart. The more this, this truth penetrates your heart, the more you'll be able to turn away from the path of ease and safety and pain avoidance just comfort. Right? The more you'll be able to do that, you'll be able to turn towards the path of uncompromising devotion to Christ. Because you'll be moved by how uncompromising his devotion is to you. You'll be willing to take up your cross and follow the one who loved you with absolutely no compromise. I'm going to pray. Uh, gracious Father, we uh, thank you for your word. Uh, you know our hearts. Uh, you know that... Um, Uh, that often uh, as we live uh, in this world, uh, we're tempted uh, to make small allowances, to to compromise uh, in in little ways uh, for the sake of getting along perhaps, for having an easier life, uh, a life that's more comfortable or free from rejection in some ways. Lord, we we don't want to be judgmental or just behave like jerks, uh, but we, we also don't want to compromise. We want to be faithful to you. And so we uh, pray that we would be increasingly moved, Lord Jesus, by your uncompromising love for us, uh, to be uncompromising in our devotion to you. And we pray uh, this for your glory, Lord Jesus. Amen.